Hey guys, guess what? It's the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger. Today, unfortunately, Walker Howell is not able to be with us, but that's okay. We miss him. We love him, but he's he's off doing some. Uh, he's handling some important business right now, so we we certainly want to keep him in our mind. But today, our guest is Caleb Hammond. We're very very excited to have Caleb on the show with us. Uh, Caleb is a student here with me at Fried Hardman, and he's also going to be interning alongside of me at a congregation here in Tennessee next summer, and I'm very, very much looking forward to that. But, uh, Caleb, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit further to the audience here. Yes, uh, my name is Caleb Hammond, like we said. Uh, I'm from northwest Georgia, from a little town uh, called Armarchy. Uh, it's just north of Rome, uh, if you've ever heard of Rome, but it's just northwest corner of the state. Um, I'm a Bible major here at Fried Hardman. Um, I'm a uh, biochemistry major as well. And uh, specifically uh, in this episode, um, as it pertains to the topic, um, we're studying the existence of God. We're, we're trying to prove the existence of God. Um, and uh, I have personal experience with this. Uh, I just want to emphasize that, I guess, as we start um, to kind of help anybody who's, who's struggling themselves. So they, they can kind of understand um, that the things that I, I say are things that I have really dug into. Uh, they're things that I have wrestled with and struggled with. Um, about this time last year, if you'd have come up to me and asked me, Caleb, are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? Uh, I would have struggled to answer that question. Um, I was really wrestling with the with the existence of God, with the inspiration of Scripture, with my belief in Christ. And so, um, as we look at this stuff today, I, I you know I just you know, I want you to know Isaiah, and I want everybody else to know that I, like these are things that I, I've dug into, that I've wrestled with, and I, I I want nothing more than everybody else to come to the conclusions that that I have, um, which I think is you know, demanded by the evidence. Uh, there's a thing called the law of rationality. Um, and then what this says is basically that everybody, if we're going to be rational people, should come to the conclusions in life that are demanded by the evidence. And so that's exactly what I want to do today is I want us to point out what the evidence is. And hopefully we'll come to the conclusions that the evidence brings us to, that we'll put down our personal biases and we'll just allow the evidence to speak. We appreciate you, Caleb. We appreciate all the work that you put into this. And you know, it's, it's always it makes my job as host easy when we have a guest like Caleb, who's put in a lot of time and a lot of effort into these kinds of subjects. So yeah, we really appreciate you, Caleb, and all the time that you spent helping us prepare this episode. Uh, as he mentioned, we want to talk about the existence of God. And this is a big, big question. Because if God exists, then, you know, this, and, and the scriptures are true, which is another subject that we'll have to get into at another point in time. Uh, but if God is true and the, is, if God is real and the scriptures are true, then that demands something of us. Yes, it does. This question is not just a knowledge question. You know, do I know that God exists? This question has implications. And so if this question is, is, is true and real, well, that needs to lead us somewhere else. If we find out that God does exist, that needs to lead us to action. If we find out that God does not exist, then, then we lose all hope and all, all meaning of our existence. And we can get into that a little bit later. But but the point is, is this question has implications. Absolutely. It, it's, it's not just a knowledge question. Definitely. It, it is a yes or no question. Does God exist? But it has more weight to it than that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just a quick note. This is part of our season four. Uh, season four, we're looking at apologetics. And so there's a lot of different defenses of the gospel that we're going to present in the season. So we definitely want to encourage you to not only listen to this episode, but after you listen to this episode, go ahead and check out the other episodes that we've released and uh, make sure you stay tuned for future episodes from the season. But we're going to go ahead and jump into the first kind of argument that we want to present, uh, maybe argument's not the best word, but first first discussion that we want to point out to you, and that is the idea of the law of cause and effect. Caleb, if you want to go ahead and take it away. So in science, um, there's a basic and fundamental law, um, and, and really it, it undermines every or it underlies rather everything that we know about reality, about whether it be scientific, whether it just be um, anything. Everything is kind of founded upon this one understanding, and that's that everything has a cause, that everything that we see, everything that we feel, everything that exists, whether in, in, in our minds or in, in action or everything that ever happens or ever is thought to happen has a cause. And so uh, the argument essentially goes like this. If matter exists, there must be a supernatural and adequate cause for its, for its existence. Matter does exist, therefore, a supernatural and adequate cause exists. And, and, that, and that's really simple, but we want to explain that a little further. 
So in science, I alluded to the scientific law of cause and effect, and that basically uh, basically just says this. The law of cause and effect states that every material effect must have an adequate and or simultaneous cause. And so what that means is, it, it, that means that if Isaiah, if I were to put my hand on your shoulder, I wouldn't expect it to dislocate. Right. Because that's not an adequate cause. Or if I was to uh, drop my phone from a height of two centimeters onto a pillow, I would not expect the screen to crack. Um, I, I, if I took a child and I wanted to launch them into orbit in outer space, I couldn't do that by swinging them on a swing. I would need to put them on a rocket ship. Or if, if I fall on the ground, I'm not going to cause an earthquake. You see, I'm not an adequate cause for an earthquake. Right. Um, a few drops of rain over a period of five minutes is not an adequate cause for a flood. Mm -hmm. And so in, in science and in ma the material world, we live in a material world. In, a, in the material world, everything has a cause. And every cause must be great enough. Let me rephrase that. Every effect must have had a cause great enough to cause it. And so, yes, everything has a cause, but not everything is an adequate cause. Right. So if we look at the universe around us, we look at this material world, whether that be here on Earth, whether it be in Venus or in Mars or Jupiter or Saturn or whatever. If we look at the material world or outside this, this galaxy, if we look at the material world, there's a lot of matter. Mm -hmm. Matter does exist. And so if, if matter exists, then we, we should expect there to be an adequate cause for that matter. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. How much matter is on the earth? More than I can count, that's for sure. More than you can. How many grains of sand are on the beach? More than you can count, right? Absolutely. Okay, so not only the grains of sand on the beach, but there's all the dirt under that sand. There's all the rock under that sand. There's all the water in front of that sand. Underneath all that water, we see animals, their matter. We see uh, more dirt, more rock matter. We see oxygen in the air. We see oxygen dissolved in water. We see carbon dioxide in the air. We see nitrogen in the air. We see all kinds of matter. Matter exists, and it exists in a plethoric way. There is so, so much matter in the world. The planet Jupiter is huge. It's way bigger than Earth. There's a graphic that I absolutely love, and it shows Earth compared to Venus, and they're about the same size, and then it shows Earth compared to Mars, and it's just a little bit bigger than Mars, but but it's still you know somewhat comparable. And then it shows Earth compared to Jupiter, and Jupiter absolutely dwarfs Earth, absolutely dwarfs it. And then it shows Earth compared to Jupiter compared to the Sun. And then you have Earth as a little tiny speck. Jupiter is a pretty, you know, decent-sized dot. And then you have the, the Sun filling up the rest of the picture. And then it takes that a step further, and it puts the Sun against all these other stars. And the sun is absolutely dwarfed by stars like Betelgeuse and others that I don't know the name of. And so we can just keep going. And this graphic, it does, it keeps going until at the end you have these huge stars filling up the picture. And then you have these little tiny, dot, tiny dots that recommend that, that represent rather the sun and Jupiter and the earth. And I say all that to say there's a lot of big stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff composed of a lot of matter. Mm -hmm. And so... If I can't drop a paperclip in the ocean and cause a tidal wave, how do I expect something really tiny and really small to create something this big and this grand? You see, every material effect, the earth and all these things are material effects. Every material effect has and must have an adequate cause. And so we know that matter isn't eternal. We know matter is not eternal. So, so matter had to come from somewhere. And all this matter that we see had to come from somewhere. And so scientists have tried to explain this. They've tried to explain the existence of matter, and they've tried to give it an adequate cause. And the adequate cause that a lot of them have given it is the Big Bang Theory. Are you familiar with the Big Bang Theory? I am. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the Big Bang Theory essentially states that a small singularity of matter um, a long, long, long time ago uh, exploded and brought about into existence all the matter that we see in the Earth today. Now, the reason I say that this is inadequate is because a small singularity of matter can be adequately described and is by Stephen Hawking and other atheists as nothing. Mm -hmm. The idea that nothing caused something. Right. And so even if you don't define the singularity of matter as nothing, you have to have a place for that singularity of matter to come from. So even if we go back to the Big Bang as a naturalistic ca uh, cause 
for the existence of matter, we're left saying, where did that matter come from? You see, nothing natural explains the existence of matter because nat things that are na natural are matter. So where did the matter come from? And so that's why we introduce God into this equation. That's why we say, well, we must look to something supernatural. At the beginning, when I laid out the premises, or when I laid out the argument, one of the premises is that, or the basic argument is, if, the, if matter exists, supernatural creator, supernatural cause exists, because matter demands something supernatural. And that's, that's exactly what we see. If we look at all the world and we see all of the huge and large amounts of matter, we have to, to know, we have to conclude that something immaterial and great, something supernatural, something that, that precedes nature, something that is higher than nature, brought this about. And so that's why we come to God. That's why we say that God is the only uh, adequate cause. But there is something uh, that's interesting to consider. Um, and it's something that uh, Dan Barker brought up in his debate against Kyle Butt. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that debate or not. But uh, one thing Dan said was who created God? Because Kyle brought this up. You know, matter has to have a creator. Kyle brought this up. And Dan said, well, well who created God? And it's an interesting question. It's, and it's worth some, worth some thought. But it really, the answer comes quite quickly. If we go back to our, 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 our fundamental law of science, Every material effect must have an adequate or simultaneous cause. Right. Is God a material effect? He can't be. He's he can't be. Why not? Because he's a he's a spirit. He's a being. He's supernatural, right? He's outside of nature. He's he's, he's spiritual. He's not material. He's immaterial. Mm -hmm. And so, if we if we understand that that the God we're introducing is not a physical being, but rather a spiritual being, then that question dissolves. We don't have to know who caused God, because the 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 being and the entity that to which into which we introduce or the being and entity that we're introducing into the situation must be supernatural. Right. We cannot have a material cause. We have to have a supernatural cause, and that supernatural cause must be the eternal and supernatural God. He he requires no cause, uh, unlike the Big Bang theory, or unlike um, some of these other uh, theories like aliens or. Uh, meteorites or all those things, those things all need a cause as mm -hmm. well. But God requires no cause because God is outside of nature. So really, and, and to, to sum that point up, I guess, um, the law of cause and effect says matter has to have a cause. So because of that, we can say, well, if matter exists and it has to have a cause, its cause must be the supernatural creator of the universe, God. Matter exists, therefore, the supernatural creator of the universe to whom we refer to as God, um, to whom we refer as God, must have been that creator. He must also exist. Uh, the law of cause and effect is intuitive. We understand it. We, we, we have a, in order to do anything we do in life, we have an understanding of this law. Um, everything we do, we understand that you know, if we're going to get angry at something, are we going to get angry at something small? Sometimes we do, right? But we understand that's unjust. Whenever we get angry about big things, we understand that's an adequate cause. Not, not just science, but in everything. In society, this law of cause and effect pervades. This law, it prevails. It is, it is so true and intuitive, and we understand it and we utilize it. The only reason that scientists dismiss this is because of the implications, namely that God exists. Right. You know, we see this. This, what you're describing here, Caleb, we see that in the beginning of the scriptures, right? When you open your scriptures up to Genesis chapter one, right? Yeah, we see exactly. God being the cause and the effect is the creation. Exactly. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the Bible writers, they understood this principle. There must have been a cause. In fact, every civilization ever understood this principle. They looked around and they said, whoa, there's a lot of stuff here. <laughs> and they said... That must have been the sun god and the moon god and the mm -hmm. earth god, and they so they created all these gods. But but in a sense, that I mean that's not, that was natural and that was logical because they saw all this stuff and they said there must have been a cause, and they said it's God, Some, someone supernatural, someone higher than us, because you and I we can't create this. Right. We don't have that kind of power. Something anything material does not have that kind of power. Has to be God. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, we've, we've talked a lot already and uh, some great points have been made. Uh, you know, and some people, they, they will look at that argument and like you said, they'll dismiss it because when we prove, because we can, when we prove that God is, is real and he is who he says he is in his word, then like we pointed out earlier, that requires something of us because we recognize that God has given us our life. And that's another argument that we want to point out to you is the law of biogenesis, right? Life demands a life giver. Okay, so this one is uh, probably my favorite. Uh, well, I don't know. I have, I have a lot of favorites, <laughs> and we're going to get into those. But this one is one of my favorites to talk about Isaiah, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it's because it is so, so simple and so intuitive. I mean, we just we understand this on like, so like, naturally. We understand this. Um, and so it, it's, it's just so simple. So I want to I want to state it in a way that, that we can kind of lay this argument out. So the, the law of biogenesis states that in nature, life comes only from previous life of its own kind. If you have a bee, a bee comes from what? Bees. Bees. If you have a human, humans come from humans. And so this argument can be used to dismantle evolution, but that's not where we're going with it. The way we're going to go with it is we're going to go with it like this. If life exists... A supernatural, life-giving creator must also exist. Life does exist, as we've pointed out quite easily, just by being here. Right. Therefore, a supernatural, life-giving creator exists. And so you might be wondering, well, how do those connect? How come life's existence points us to the existence of God? And I'll show you. Um, there's been a lot of experience over the years, uh, specifically in the past um, few centuries, uh, in the past few decades. Um, but these, this is pretty old old experiments. And so I want to start with Francesco Reddy. Um, have you ever heard of Francesco Reddy? Don't think so, no. Okay, so Francesco Reddy um, was, a, was an Italian scientist um, back in the day. I don't even know when, a long time ago. Right. Um, but he did an experiment that was very, very interesting. So uh, there was this idea in science at the time called spontaneous generation. And so people thought that life could spontaneously generate and just come about. And so uh, people would have like meat and stuff at their houses because they ate meat, but the meat would spoil. And they were so confused why it would spoil. They were like, why does, why, why does the meat always spoil? We leave it out and, and it always, the flies put back, uh, mm -hmm. the flies get there, the maggots get there. Like what? That's so weird. Why does that happen? And so they, they had this idea of spontaneous generation that if, if meat sat out in the air for, a long, for long enough, then ma maggots and flies would just appear in the meat they would just spontaneously generate um and so francesco reddy didn't like this idea and he's like no that's not right i don't think that's right so he did an experiment so he took some meat and he allowed it to rot um but what he did is he took some some of the meat and he covered it he put it in a jar and he covered it so that flies couldn't get to it so he left that meat in the jar and then he took some meat and he put it in the jar but he left it open you know what happened what maggots began to show up in the uncovered meat, but not in the covered meat. You see, what Francesco was pointing out is that the maggots don't just spontaneously generate. It's the flies who lay the eggs that form the maggots in the meat. Right. That life comes from life. Life does not come from non-life, from the air. Life comes from other life after its own kind. But Francesco's uh, uh, experiment was not quite enough. And so we move on to a more influential scientist, that most people have probably heard of, and that's Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur. Louis, he wanted to do the same thing, and he did it definitively. I mean, absolutely nobody came close to, to really, nobody's experiment has been as influential as his has. And so basically what Louis Pasteur did is he took some, uh, some different nutrients and minerals and um, some different things that are important in life, and he made a little broth. So he made this nutrient broth, and he put it in a flask, and it was an it was a flask with an S curved neck. And so what what the flask did is it allowed airflow, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, things that are important for life, but it did not allow dust or microorganisms to get through. And so um, he put this nutrient filled broth, and he put the S curved neck, and he allowed you know airflow, but no dust, no organisms, no life. And so the idea in science at the time with the spontaneous generation was that, because Reddy didn't disprove it, but just put some doubt towards it. So the idea was spontaneous generation. You need airflow. 
and you need nutrients and stuff like that. And out of that, life will form. The simplest form of life, but it'll form. Pasteur was like, nah, I don't think that's the case. And so he left this nutrient-filled broth with airflow for an entire year. An entire year. Guess how many microorganisms he observed in it after a year? How many? Zero. 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 Because they couldn't get to it. The only thing that could get to it was airflow. Because airflow is not enough to cause life. Then he broke off the S-curve neck. He allowed more than just airflow to get to this nutrient-filled broth. And in one day, he observed that it was dusty, it was cloudy, and it was full of life. It was full of microorganisms who were just begging and just waiting to feed on the nutrients in the broth. Louis' experiment, Pasteur's experiment, proved definitively that airflow and nutrients are not enough for life, but rather only life is enough to bring about life. And so that's the foundation of this argument. I laid out the, the logical flow earlier. If life exists, God exists. Life exists, therefore God exists. Really simple. But this, this, this is the reason that we can say that. This is the reason that we can say A proves B. A proves B because life has to come from life. Um, and you might, you might say, okay, well, okay, so that's a valid experiment. Those are valid. But how is this a valid conclusion? I want to read you the words of George Wald. Now, George Wald is a professor, I think. Um, I didn't write that down, but I think he's a professor. But he's an evolutionist, and he's a prominent evolutionist. And in, these are the words of George Wald. He said, when it comes to the origin of life, we have only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is the supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 100 years ago by Louis Pasteur, Spallanzani, Reddy, and others. That leads us scientifically to only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution. George Wald's words prove to us, show all of us, that logically speaking, we must conclude that God exists. That logically speaking, this argument that life demands a life giver, that that's valid. He says, we observe it in science, life only comes from life. Therefore, spontaneous generation can't be true. Therefore, God must exist. Therefore, there must have been a creator. Now, he says himself that he will not accept that, but he, he says, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Earlier, I alluded to the law of rationality, and I brought that out because um, I want to lay that I want to lay that out as the foundation for, our, for our, this study, is that we will accept the premises, or we will accept the conclusions that are justified by the evidence. Well, that's exactly what he has admitted to not doing. He is accepting a, a conclusion that is not justified by the evidence. In fact, he's accepting a conclusion that has negative evidence. That the evidence actually points the other way. Not that it's not conclusive, but it is absolutely against him and his position. Not him necessarily, but against his position. The evidence points to a creator, to a supernatural life giver. And yet he, George Wald and so many others choose to believe in that which is scientifically impossible. They choose to believe in spontaneous generation. Um, and I, I don't want our viewers to, to make that same mistake. That's a really important distinction there, Caleb. Bill. Uh, and like we said in the beginning of this episode, we really want the, the listeners at home to put aside any personal biases that may happen and just look at the evidence. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, that's what we're called to do when we're on jury duty, right, for a court. Right? We're not supposed to have any predetermined biases already against one person or the other, because that would make the trial unfair. The same thing goes on here. We're, we're essentially putting God on trial and saying, if you're real, then prove it. And God says, here you go. But like you pointed out, there's so many people that don't want to believe in God. And so they choose not to, despite the, I would say, overwhelming evidence. Overwhelming, yeah, overwhelming is the only way to describe it. Um, if we look at these things with an open heart um, and an open mind, and we really dig into them, I will come to the conclusion that God exists. We really will. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've laid out this argument, uh, but I really want to show kind of why I, I feel so strongly about it. Um, I've said, you know, if life exists, that demands a life giver. I, I showed, you know, what, 
George Wald said, you know, that we have only one possible conclusion, a, a creator God. How come I believe life demands life giver? Why is that the case? Well, it is the case because life comes from life after its own kind. Say we have some elephants. We have a group of elephants. And say Bob is one of our elephants. Bob had a dad. Dad's, his dad's name was Peter. Peter had a dad. His dad's name was Andrew. So now we have Bob, Peter, Andrew. Andrew's dad's name was Isaiah. And Isaiah's dad's name was, you throw out whatever you want. It doesn't matter. The point is, all those elephants had parents, mm -hmm. right? That's the fundamental law. That's a fundamental understanding of science. Um, Neil Shubin um, says, the biological law of everything is that every living thing on the planet had parents. And so if that's the case, if everything has parents, Isaiah, where did the first elephant come from? It had to come from the first elephant, or excuse me, the first elephant had to come from someone other than... An elephant, right? Exactly. It, it had to come from something other than an elephant. Life comes from life. So if we have a first elephant and it only comes from life, ah, that breaks our natural minds. Mm -hmm. it, it, the, the, the process naturally stops there. In fact, if, if, if life comes from life after its own kind, and we don't accept something supernatural, then we have to believe that life never had a beginning, mm -hmm. and that rather it was eternal, and life always existed, and that is simply not what we observe in the natural world. Right. See, the first elephant had to come from something that was non-living in the same way. It had to come from someone non-natural, something supernatural, something outside of nature, something that, that was not um, was not limited to this natural world. The first elephant didn't come from an elephant. It mm -hmm. came from God. Amen. The first elephant did not, the first bee or the first uh, plant, anything living had to come from God. If we take it back all the way, we have to have a supernatural creator, a supernatural life-giving creator to start the process. Someone who precedes life, someone who came before it, and someone who's greater than it. Um, the law of biogenesis is a fact. The evidence points us in that direction. Therefore, God exists. He's the only logical conclusion for the evidence of life on earth. He's the only logical conclusion because he is the only adequate beginning to the process. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate you bringing all of this up, Caleb. You know, we talked a lot already about the, the matter that we see here on earth, the, you know, the physical materials that we see on earth, the wood and the, the rocks and the metal and all those kinds of things, and how all of those things have to have a cause to be there. Right? There has to be a reason for them to be there. Someone has to split the energy for them to be there. And we talked about how that can only come from God. We've talked about how the only force powerful enough to supply the earth with all the matter that we see, and not just the earth, but all the matter that we see in the universe, mm -hmm. that has to come from God. And we've also seen that God is the giver of life. There is no life that has any understandable explanation except from God, except if God created it during those seven days of creation that we read about in Genesis chapter one. And I think when we're looking at these, these things, we have to re realize, you know, whether it's life or matter or, or whatever we're talking about, that these things have been intelligently designed. Exactly. They have been intentionally designed. They're not just kind of, thrown together like a last minute science project, right? Exactly. Yeah. They have been intentionally and in intellectually designed. You know, and there's there's a lot of information in that, right? When we look at our bodies, we look at plants or animals or matter or whatever it may be, there's a lot of information stored up in there, right? Like our, our genes or our DNA. That's information about us. That uh, you know, I have genes that say I have brown hair. I have genes that say I have brown eyes, that kind of thing. And all of that information had to come from somewhere and all of the designs that we see had to come from somewhere so we want to prove to you at home that if there is a design as we see all around us then that has to be a designer that's exactly right isaiah design demands a designer um the argument essentially goes like this if design in the universe exists a supernatural and intelligent designer must also exist design in the universe does exist Complex functional design does exist. Therefore, a supernatural intelligent designer also exists, must exist. If we see design, there must be a designer. Isaiah, when you walked into this building, did you wonder how it got here? Nope. Were you confused on how it got here? 
Nope. Why are we not confused? Well, hey, I've been in this building before, right? Okay. It's, it's not like it's just suddenly spawned exactly. out of nowhere. Okay, it didn't spawn out yeah. But it's also, you know, we can we have the, the history books here on campus that can tell us when all these buildings were, were built and why they were built, you know, the exactly. original purpose of these buildings. We can go back and we can probably find the names of those men who helped design it and helped pay for it and helped engineer it. Exactly. If you go to uh, if you go to Western Europe and you view all the beautiful architecture um, from back in, you know, that was built in the 1500s, the 1600s, you go back and you view, view all that beautiful architecture. Um, especially during the Renaissance and stuff, if you view all that, do you wonder, when did this get here? Or how, how did this get here? Yeah. You want, you might wonder, when was this built? When was this designed? But just by seeing it, you know two things. A, it was built, and B, it was built by someone. I mean, immediately, you know those two things. And so if you walk into the Sistine Chapel, you don't see all the beautiful paintings across the ceiling of all the, all the people, and you don't you don't view all these paintings and go, how did these get here? <laughs> you say, Michelangelo did a good job. Right. If you don't know it was Michelangelo, you might say, that person did a good job painting those paintings. But you know that if you see a painting, there must have been a painter. Same thing, if you see a clock, there must have been a clockmaker. If you see a laptop, there must have been a software engineer and somebody to put all this together and design all of this. If you see a building, you know there's an architect and a civil engineer and builders and construction workers. You understand that. Because it's logical and it's intuitive. Well, the same thing is true in nature. If we look in the natural world and we see oxygen and we see water and we see all these um, chemicals and materials and matter and those things, and then we look and we see all this life and all of these living things, we see mountains and we see streams and we see uh, environments, we understand that those must have been designed. It's the only logical Conclusion. So I guess really, if we're going to prove that design demands a designer, we must first prove that design does exist. We must prove that the universe is designed. I want to start with this quote by an evolutionist by the name of Jerry Coyne. Jerry, Mr. Coyne says, nature resembles a well-oiled machine, a well-oiled machine. The more one learns about plants and animals, the more one marvels at how well their designs fit their ways of life. So whenever you look at the world and you see the way things interact and the way things work together and the way things are designed, you can see, yeah, they, they're designed. There must have been somebody to design them. Now, what evolutionists say is they, they don't believe there was somebody to design them. They believe that that came about by evolution. But what we want to point out today is that design does, in fact, demand a designer. And not only that, but that there is actual complex functional design. You see, he admitted there, he says, one marvels at how well their designs fit their ways of life. He believes in design. He may not believe in a, the designer and the creator, but he does believe in design. What we want to do, Isaiah, is we want to show and we want to prove that design demands a designer. Absolutely. Think about the word design. If I was to look up the definition of the word design, I would see something along these lines, a plan or a drawing produced to show the look and function or workings of a building, garment, or other object before it is built or made. What is a plan or a drawing? What's that? It's like a blueprint, right? A it, blueprint. it lays out what is what something is to look like and how it is to perform. Okay, what something is to look at and how it is to perform. Now, if, if there's a plan, does that mean that uh, it's just done on the fly? Not if it's a good one. Not if it's a good one, right? If there's a plan, that means that there was some thought, right? Mm -hmm. There was some intentionality. Right. And so if design, by definition, means there's a plan, then by definition, there's somebody to create the plan. Mm -hmm. If we observe design in the universe, in animals or in non-living things, in plants, which are living things, but in plants or animals or non-living things, if we observe design in any of these things, there must have been somebody who planned that. There must be somebody who planned that. You can't have the illusion of design which is where a lot of evolutionists have taken this. You cannot have the illusion of design. The appearance of design is truly design itself. But I want to give you some good examples, Isaiah, just because I don't want you to be you know, grasping for, for evidences of design and not getting any. So I don't, I don't want to leave you empty-handed. Appreciate that. The monarch butterfly. 
Do you know anything about monarch butterflies? Uh, a little bit. It's actually the uh, the state butterfly of West Virginia. I don't know if that's the you state knew that. butterfly of West Virginia. So is that we, where you're from? It is. Okay. Okay. So uh, so we we've learned a little bit about monarch butterflies in school, but of course that's been a few years. So it's the state butterfly of West Virginia. Did not know that. That's awesome, by the way, because that that leads right into what we're talking about. Mon monarch butterflies. What about monarch butterflies um, can help us with this design discussion? Well, I think a when we just look at the the physical design of the butterfly and how it's able to take flight. But also just the, the migration pattern, patterns of these monarch butterflies are incredible to look at. These, these butterflies will travel thousands of miles in very difficult conditions in, in, a, uh, in preparation to migrate south for the winter. Yes, exactly. I mean, monarch butterflies have the longest migration of any insect. That's, that's impressive. And that, that, that speaks a lot about them, is that they are some pretty powerful creatures. Mm -hmm. Now, now the, the thing I want to talk about, I'm glad you mentioned migration because this is just so foundational, what I'm going to bring up about butterflies. But I want to kind of take a step back from butterflies and I want us to think about clocks. Um, clocks. Do clocks have clock makers? Of course. Of, of course, right? You know, clocks have a clock maker. So if I have an analog clock right here on the wall, if there's not one, let's imagine. If there's an analog clock on that wall, then all the little gears and the battery and all those things and the hands those are all working together seamlessly to give me an accurate representation of the passage of time. Is that correct? Correct. So clocks, we understand them, have clock makers. Well, the monarch butterfly, as you mentioned, has the longer, as I think I mentioned as the longest, but you mentioned as a cool migration pattern, right? A really interesting migration. They have the longest migration pattern, uh, migration of any insect. And so one has to wonder, how does little baby monarch butterfly Jerry make his first migration and go to the right place at the right time. Every time. Every time. How does he go from West Virginia to Mexico, I think it is, mm -hmm. how does he do that if he's never made that flight before? Well, either somebody told him or he knew instinctively. He knew instinctively. That's right, because mother butterflies don't communicate like we do. His mom did say, okay, Jerry, here's how you get there. You take a ride on I-40, <laughs> stay on I-40 for 30 miles, and then you get on I-40. No, no, no. That's, that's not how that works, right? He was designed with an internal clock compass mechanism that allows him to know what time of day it is intuitively and then to take in the light from the sun in a way that he knows which direction he's going. Now, we could get into this pretty deeply, but I, I want to make it – Listenable. I wanted to make it, you know, listenable to hear, to our hearers. So I'll be really brief with this really scientific part of this. But basically, inside the monarch butterfly, there's uh, a complex circadian rhythm mechanism. Now we have circadian rhythms, um, and so our circadian rhythms basically tell us um, what time of day it is, and they uh, make our body function in a way that we get tired at certain times and are ready to sleep so that we can be rested. And normally that happens at dark. Right. right. And so this is a, a common mechanism we see across all species is circadian rhythms. But the monarch butterfly's circadian rhythm mechanism is extremely, extremely important because the monarch butterfly, it needs to migrate to Mexico at a certain time. And it has to travel an extremely far distance and it has to get to the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And so the clock compass mechanism, the circadian rhythm compass mechanism, that the monarch butterfly has is of extreme importance. It is of the utmost importance that the monarch butterfly's system is. Now I want you to notice the design of this system. There's a certain protein in this butterfly that takes in light. And then that light, as it hits that protein, that protein, that protein phosphorylates another protein. And then that protein joins up with these other two proteins to make this system that carries this other protein, sorry about this, is, is, I'm not using names because it'd be even more confusing, but these proteins come together and they form this system and they go into the nucleus. And then their presence in the nucleus of the cell, of the butterfly, of the monarch's cell, the nucleus, there's these two, um, these two uh, genes there. Um, and basically it tells, their presence tells them, okay, we, we should stop making such and such protein, because that's the protein that, you know, tells them the monarch it's this time of day versus another. Right. And so they're like, okay, we'll, we'll stop making that, or the lack of a, we will make that. And so basically this system allows the monarch to know um, 
what time it is. Um, in fact, uh, in an article, um, or not an article, rather on the webpage of um, a certain scientist by the name of Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Reppert. I can't remember his, his first name, but Dr. Reppert, on his, he's studied monarch butterflies a lot, and on his webpage for his lab, um, it, says, it says this, based on the action of this feedback loop, of the proteins and the nucleus and the genes, based on the, the uh, process of this feedback loop, clock, the clock protein levels oscillate in a roughly 24-hour rhythm, even in the absence of light. And so the monarch butterfly doesn't have to see the light to know what time it is, but it knows intuitively because of the way that feedback loop in its cells operates. Mm -hmm. it, it knows intuitively by the presence of a certain protein. Its cells are like, okay, it's this time of day. The monarch butterfly doesn't even have to think about it. Its cells just know that because of the presence of a certain protein. And so I'm sorry we got bogged down there a little bit, but let's bring it kind of back mm -hmm. to the surface a little bit. The monarch butterfly knows what time it is, but not only that, its antennas communicate with um, its the, with its eyes, I think it is. Its antennas communicate with its eyes and its, and its brain kind of puts all that together and it knows, okay, this amount of light it's coming in, it's coming in from this direction. Okay, if the light's coming in from this direction, and what time of day is it? Oh, okay, thanks, cell. It's this time of day. So it's this time of day, and the light's hitting me from the north, which means it's blah, 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 I'm going, or, you know. And so it knows the direction to right. travel. And so, you know, we took Baby Monarch Jerry, right? Baby Monarch Jerry wakes up one morning, and he goes, oh, it's time to migrate. Okay, which direction do I go? Hmm, oh, the sun's over here. That means I go this direction. And so little baby Jerry can can fly south from West Virginia and make it to Mexico because he knows that Southwest is this way based on where the sun is because he knows what time it is. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's just to, to help, I think, maybe boil it down a little bit, right? The, the monarch butterfly has these, these proteins in it these, mm -hmm. these, uh, that when the light hits this protein, it sets off this chain reaction. Yes. Right. And, and it lets the, not only the monarch butterfly know, A, what time of day it is, but also be when it's time to get it out of there, right? When, when it's time for you as the butterfly to fly south in the winter. And so when we look at that, and like we said, that's not something that, you know, the butterfly's parents will tell them, no. right? That's not something that we as humans will say, all right, it's, it's October 31st. You've got you to gotta get out of here, yeah. right? Winter's coming. It's not something that we can directly say to them. And it's, it's something that they know. It's something that has been designed into them, programmed into them, if you will. Exactly. I mentioned clocks, and that's that's why I mentioned clocks. We see clocks on the wall, and they tell us what time it is. But we have to set them, right? And we mm -hmm. have to make the clocks. The monarch butterfly has a clock inside of itself. That clock must have been designed and created by a clockmaker. But not only that, it also is able to, to know which direction it's flying, like a compass, if you will. So I, I refer to it as the clock compass mechanism. Mm -hmm. So it has this ability to know which direction it's flying. A compass was also designed and built by someone. And nobody just, uh, no compass just comes from nowhere. Right. It has a compass designer, compass maker. And so the monarch butterfly with its internal clock compass mechanism must have been designed. And you know, it's interesting when we look at that or maybe the, the homing ability of the homing pigeons or other creatures like that or, you know, the, the, flight speed of certain falcons or hawks or things like that we look at those things and we say what if we could be able to do those exactly. right you know you were you were reading to me a quote earlier by a, i think it's george washington university right about about how nature is so much better than humans right if you you have that quote pulled up i do uh, on the webpage for george washington university's center for biomedics and bioinspired engineering they said this despite our seeming prowess our supposed prowess in these competent technologies. We find it hard to outperform nature in this area. They find it hard to outperform nature. Now get this, nature's solutions are smarter, more energy efficient, agile, adaptable, fault tolerant, environmentally friendly, and multifunctional. Thus, there is much that we as engineers can learn from nature as we develop the next generation machines and technologies. So as we progress as humans, and as our engineers design things to make our lives easier and better and more complex, as they do that, guess what they need to be doing? Learning from nature. 
because nature is better than we are. Our best engineers are not as good at designing things as the things we see in nature. In fact, in um, a couple of years ago, uh, it's been several years, but a four million, uh, a particular arm, a, a prosthetic arm, was created and designed, um, and it was put on the shoulder of a marine. They took nerves out of her body and attached it um, to her arm so that she could like, move her fingers and stuff like that. So they spent four million dollars on this prosthetic that allowed this marine to use her fingers. Um, and so this doctor named Dr. Kukin or Kagan, not not sure how to pronounce his name. He was the head of this project, and he said it was a wonder in human human engineering, that it was a marvelous thing that they had done. Um, but he admitted that this $4 million arm that they created was clumsy compared to the human arm. Um, the best that we have done as humans in regards to uh, engineering certain things does not even compare to the engineering and the design that we see in the world. Uh, the design that we see in the universe is far more complex, far more functional, far more efficient, and far more intelligent. And so if we understand that, that prosthetic must have been designed by some doctor and some engineer, then we have to understand as well that the complex design we see in the world must have been created and designed by the chief engineer. Absolutely. God. Absolutely. And, you know, like we, like we mentioned, when we see all of these things and their incredible designs and how efficient they are at performing whatever specific task that God designed it for, Right. That's where we get into the, the study of biomimicry, right, where we try to create these things based off the, mm -hmm. the animals that we see. But, you know, it's it's there's not a uh, there's also some the counter arguments to this. Right. Because people will look at some things in nature or look at some things in, in humans and say, well, that doesn't work the way that it should. Right. And, uh, and some people have looked at the appendixes for a long time. They, they, they thought, you know, we don't need the appendix. Right. They, and so they, they point out these. So, "Quote unquote flaws in, in, in the design that they see, but you know what's what's our response to that as Christians? What what do we say to those who claim that there is only bad design in the universe? So you bring up an interesting point with the appendix. Um, there, uh, the appendix and muscles behind our ears. Um, they formerly thought uh, with our tonsils. These are all things that we refer to as vestigial organs. Um, and then that goes into a discussion of with our DNA. Um, there's all this." "Quote unquote junk DNA, um, which is DNA that does not pro, uh, code for proteins for the creation of different proteins, and so all of that is kind of a discussion of its own. Um, but you bring up this idea of bad design, and so bad design um, is really something that we can easily refute um, if we if we dig into it and think about it a little bit more. And so um, in in a debate with uh, Kyle Butt, um, one of the audience members, uh, whenever they're asking questions. Um, they asked Dan Barker and Kyle Butt, um, so it's the Butt Barker debate. They asked Mr. Kyle specifically, they said, uh, you know, I'm a biologist. There's a lot of bad design in the world, stuff that no engineer would ever make stuff that clumsy and that bad. Um, so are you saying, you know, is God that bad of an engineer? Or is there just not a, a God who's doing the engineering? And so Kyle, uh, I think, had a, had a very good answer to that. And what he did is he proved that there is good design. I mentioned the $4 million arm. That was something that I got from that debate with Kyle. Those were actually, I quoted Kyle a little bit there um, as he talked about that arm. He also talked about the, uh, the design of the human eye. Um, the human eye is fascinating. I mean, it is fascinating. And uh, he talked about that. But after he talked about design and proving that there is good design, Dan Barker mentioned how the eye was actually bad design. So Kyle said it's good design, then Barker said it's bad design. And the reason he said that is because our retinas are uh, backwards. Hmm. Um, our retinas are facing backwards and not forwards. And so what that does is that leaves us with a blind spot. And so to fill in that blind spot, our brains kind of compute and formulate an image. So I'm sitting here, and I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at this room, and I'm looking at the laptop, and I don't know what part it is, but at some point, there's a blind spot where this eye sees this, this eye sees this, and I don't see something else. Um, or maybe I do see something else, and they're just kind of overlapping each other. But anyways, there's a blind spot, and my brain fills in the gaps. And so 
Mr. Barker says, that's bad design. Why does the retina not face forward and, leave, and not have a blind spot? But let me ask Mr. Barker the question, how in the world does my brain compute in such a way that I accurately see, even though I can't actually see? How does my brain, how do my brain and my eye communicate in such a way that I have a flawless image in front of me, right. which I can see everything in front of me? Mm-hmm. How, how is that? And so the evidence for bad design with the human eye is actually evidence for the goodness of the design and the perfection of the design mm-hmm. in the fact that my brain and my eye work together so perfectly that I'm looking at you and I'm not not seeing your nose or not, not like, you know, I, you're a complete picture. Like, I'm not missing anything. Well, right? thank you. Uh, I, <laughs> I said you're a complete picture, not a good picture. Oh, well, that's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, you're a complete picture. I, there's no blind spots, right? This room, there's no blind spots. The only blind spots are behind me, mm-hmm. but nothing in front of me. And so how in the world is that? Well, it's because my brain has been designed in such a way that it can work and communicate with my eye to do just this and to produce this image. Right. And I would wager, I'm not a, a scientist by any means, but I would wager that if our retinas were facing forwards, that would lead to some other complications that... Most likely. That uh, would, there's a reason that God designed it the way he did. Exactly. Um, exactly. exactly. Um, so yeah, uh, our eyes, they work great. Um, and that, so I brought up vestigial organs, or you brought up vestigial organs. I want to touch on that briefly. Go ahead. Um, why do we see certain things in our bodies that seem to be vestigial and unnecessary? Well, the fact is, if we've dug into these quote-unquote vestigial organs, guess what we found? What? That they all have a function. Such as? So, okay, so take uh, tonsils, for example. For the longest time, scientists believed that tonsils were a vestigial organ that we no longer needed and were not important to the human body. But over time, we researched and dug into tonsils and what they did, and we found out that in children, they function as part of the immune system. Mm -hmm. They have a purpose that they're not there for no reason. I mentioned quote-unquote junk DNA. There's DNA on our bodies that does not code for proteins. So if you don't understand what I'm talking about, let me lay it out briefly and as lightly and easily to understand as I can. We have DNA in our bodies, Mm -hmm. and that DNA um, gives rise to the creation of proteins. And proteins are uh, what we observe as genes. So you have brown eyes. Uh, The reason you have brown eyes is because of certain proteins in your body. The reason that you have white skin is because of certain proteins mm-hmm. in your body. The reasons that you have brown hair, certain proteins in your body. The reasons that you can grow a beard and I can't, certain proteins in your body. Those are all genes that we notice and observe because on the small g- level of the genome, we see certain base pairs, certain nucleotides in the DNA that give rise to those proteins. So now, junk DNA. There, in our DNA, there's a lot of DNA, a lot of it, that does not code for proteins. And so for a long time, scientists was like, oh, it's junk. It's there just as the result of evolution, and it has no purpose. And it's vestigial. It's not designed, and that's junk. But it, in fact, is designed, as we studied that DNA, uh, about 80% of that quote-unquote junk DNA, that we, uh, as we've studied it, we've learned it, it serves as space fillers and for structural purposes. That it may not give rise to certain genes, it may not make proteins, but what it does do is it functions and serves a purpose to allow the cell and the other DNA to work the way they need to, if that makes sense. Right. And so what we see is even the bad designs that atheists like to point out, scientists like to point out, that actually turn out to have a purpose and a uh, function, and that there is actually good design all around us. Definitely, definitely. And I think it's important for us to touch on here, you know, even though we may call them scientists, right? I, I don't know if that would be a proper label for someone who disregards the evidence. You know, we we had that quote earlier in the in the episode, uh, talking about uh, George Walden. He said, you know, I refuse to believe the evidence because I do not want to believe in God. And so, exactly. I think it's important for us to point out that yes, these are very smart individuals. These are very you know uh, hardworking individuals, but if they do not actually look at the evidence and accept whatever the evidence says, regardless if it's supporting your beliefs or not, then... They're not rational. Exactly. And science is about rationality. Exactly. In fact, life is about rationality. We ought to be rational beings. We ought to uh, take and and, and form the conclusions and the beliefs that follow the evidence. Mm -hmm. And it is my opinion, and I hope I have laid it out clearly enough uh, this evening, uh, on this episode, 
that God exists because of the evidence. Right. And I think it's also important for us to point out that even though it may seem like the overwhelming majority of people who call themselves scientists are evolutionary, uh, are atheistic, I think it's important for us to realize that there is a big portion of scientists out there who are either always have been creationists, always have been Christian, or they are coming around to the idea that, you know, this evolutionary theory, this, you know, generation, you know, super generation of life or whatever could not be the answer, cannot be the answer. And so even though, you know, it, for, for us as Christians, we may feel like, you know, the world is against us. We may feel like the science world is against us and that we can't trust anything that science says. We don't want that opinion uh, to, to remain, right? Because as we pointed out here, there's a lot of good science, a lot of sound science that points us back to God. And all science really points us back all to God. All science points us back to God. I appreciate you saying that, Isaiah. Um, a lot of times Christians believe that we can't be scientists. We believe that science and the Bible are in opposition. Well, that is not the case. The science, science actually proves um, and works hand in hand with Scripture. In fact, exactly. without a proper understanding of Scripture, we cannot properly understand science. Mm -hmm. If we're going to study science without Scripture, we're going to come to a lot of conclusions that are not logical, that are not rational. Right. Because we have to have some physical explanation. But if we understand that the supernatural is a possibility, just a possibility, then everything we observe in science can become much more reasonable and much more rational. And we can understand matter demands a maker, design demands a designer, life demands a life giver. Absolutely. Uh, again, I want to thank you, Caleb, so much for coming on this episode and, and really helping us out understanding all of these things, talking about, you know, the, the, the fact that there is this cause and effect that we see in matter, that there is life and that had to come from somewhere and that all life, all matter has been intelligently designed. Uh, these are things that I certainly could not have uh, done a, a, as good a job as you did. So again, I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on. I really appreciate that Walker. Uh, or not Walker. Isaiah, <laughs> uh, I, that, I really appreciate that Isaiah. Um, really kind to let me let me join um and like i said this is something that's really important to me uh stuff i really dug into um stuff i care a lot a lot about um I, yeah it's important stuff and it's important Absolutely. to me and so i'm glad that i'm getting to share some of it yeah and we're, we're so glad you have that passion but like you said this is something important right this isn't just some you know meaningless philosophical debate no. right no. this has incredible implications this is for the us. biggest question we can ever ask absolutely Absolutely. And the reason because of that is if we can prove that God exists like we have, hopefully for you all in this episode, then that should mean something to us. Right. We can. And that, that presents us with a choice. We can either be like all those evolutionists that we looked at earlier who look at the evidence and turn away from it and decide to pursue what they want to pursue. Or we can say there is a God out there who is superior he has the power and the wisdom and the abilities that I do not have. He is superior to me and deserves my worship and deserves my praise. Deserves your, your life, your service. Exactly. And so, I, I mean, I, I hate to you know, read it between the lines or uh, whatever, but uh, take you know, George Wall. We mentioned how he said he could not philosophically accept that God exists. Um, I think that there is something within George Wall, uh, some... Thing that he loves that he doesn't want to let go of or maybe it's 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 pride or whatever it is there's something that is preventing him from admitting that god exists because he does not want to have to follow through with the implications of that right um but there was an atheist um in the, in the 1970s one of the leading atheists in the world um and uh his name was war uh his name was warren Fluke. Um, Anthony Flew, sorry, Anthony Flew. And he debated Thomas Warren. There we go. That was why my name's got this gotcha. And uh, Anthony Flew, he debated Thomas Warren, and he was the world's most leading atheist leading up to that. And a couple years later, he wrote a book called There Is Not Marked Out a God. There is a God. Right. How the world's leading atheist um, came to believe in God. And so it is possible. To, uh, to, to follow the evidence where it leads and become a Christian um, or to become a believer in God. Um, but a lot of times uh, atheists or, or, or people in general are held back mm -hmm.
because of certain things that are in them, they don't want to follow through those implications. Because um, this question is is very important. Exactly. Now, and I appreciate you bringing that story up because, like you said, if you approach this subject with an open mind, the evidence points us back to God. Everything in this earth points us back to God, and because of His creation, because of how intelligently designed everything in this universe is, He deserves our worship, our praise, and our dedication. But I think even more than that, and especially for us as Christians, we understand this. Another, maybe even bigger reason for us to praise God is because we believe that he sent his son to save us from our sins. Exactly. And that's something that could not happen without that sacrifice. Exactly. We can look at creation and we can see uh, God's attributes. We can see his power. We can see his design, his wisdom in the design. We can see his love and allowing us to kind of be the pinnacle of his creation. We can see all these things. But even more than seeing those things in creation, we should see those things in the story of Scripture and in the story of Jesus and the fact that God in his power decided to humble himself and die for us and in his wisdom designed a plan and a scheme by which we could be saved and in his love came and did it himself. We can see the attributes of God even more in the gospel than we can in creation. Uh, and we ought to be doing that every day. What a, what a powerful statement that is, right? That the God who created the universe just by speaking it into existence, humbled himself, and went and died on the cross, the most painful way of death that humankind has ever come up with. Now that's it's a powerful statement. It's a moving statement. And if it doesn't resonate with you, it, it should. It's the kind of thing that should make you stop and think. And it's that, that sacrifice that, that, again, deserves not only worship and praise, but as Caleb pointed out earlier for us, deserves our life, a life for a life. Jesus gave his life on the cross so that we could live in his steps. And I, that's what we want to call you to do here on this podcast, not just with this episode, but with every episode. We want to point you back to God. We want to look at things through the eyes of Jesus. And we want you to recognize him as your savior and to be baptized in the waters that represent the blood that he shed on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven and that you could be with God in heaven for all eternity if you live a faithful life to him. Again, Caleb, we want to thank you so much for coming on this episode. This has been a tremendous episode. I know this, this episode has been a great help to me, and I'm sure it's been a great help to you guys at home. Caleb has some more tools for us if we want to keep researching this further. Caleb, if you want to go ahead and talk about your website real quick. All right. Um, well, I'll mention my website in a minute, but first I want to point you to the uh, website that's been very helpful to me in my studies, and that is Apologetics Press. Um, they put out a lot of good material, and uh, everything that I really know about this, uh, I've learned from them. Um, but also, I do have a website of my own. And, um, as we're recording right now, it's, it's still in the developmental processes, but by the time this episode is published, I do hope that it'll be kind of up and running. Um, but my goal with this website is to uh, provide people with a little bit of certainty and a little bit um, of, of a firmer grasp on these things. And so the idea is that um, with this, the, the articles that I will be writing and producing um, is that people can read these things and develop a better relationship with and a firmer faith in Jesus. And so the, the, the website is called thatyoumayhavecertainty.substack.com. Thatyoumayhavecertainty.substack.com. And so the That You May Have Certainty newsletter um, is, is adapted from Luke 1 and verse 4, where the physician tells the, uh, Theophilus, um, here's why I'm writing, Theophilus. I'm producing, I'm telling you these things about Jesus, that you may have certainty of the things you have been taught. And so I want to provide people with a little bit of certainty, just like Luke did. I want to show people the evidence, just like Luke did. And I want to help people to develop a firmer faith and a better relationship with the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And we're so thankful for you and, and for the, the, the folks over at Apologetics Press who dive into these subjects, dive into these issues, and, and help us come to the understanding that there is a God, and he has created the earth and the universe just as the scriptures say he did. And so again, Caleb, we want to thank you for coming on the episode. But we realize uh, for those at home that, you know, maybe we've said something on this episode that you didn't understand, or maybe we said something that led you to ask a question. And we would love to be able to help you with that question or help you understand something. And so we here at the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast want to be accessible to you guys. And so there's loads of different ways that you can reach out to us. There's an Instagram page, TTEOJ underscore podcast. There's a Twitter by the same name. There's a Facebook page, Through the Eyes of Jesus Podcast. We also have an email, 
info at tteoj.com. Again, info at tteoj.com. Uh, there's also a phone number that you can find and uh, and send us a text. And we, we, would, we would love to be able to, to sit down and talk with you all about these scriptures, about things that we mentioned in this episode or anything at all regarding the scriptures. We want to be here for you guys as you strive to learn more about God and, and see things through the eyes of Jesus. We would love for you to be able to, to talk to us. And again, we're so thankful to have the opportunity to provide you with this message. And, and we hope that this has been inspirational to you. Again, I know it's helped me a lot. Thank you again, Caleb, for coming on. Of course. And if there's nothing else that needs to be said, uh, we want to remind you guys that God loves you and that we love you. We're going to go ahead and close the episode out in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord of all there is and creator of all there is. Lord, we're so thankful for you, for your awesome power, your incredible wisdom, and your, uh, your amazing love, Lord. All these things we know can represent you or at least represent parts of you. And we're, we're so thankful for a God that we can serve that not only is seen in the scriptures, but it's is seen in the creation all around us with your invisible attributes being clearly seen, Lord. Help us, Lord, as we approach these subjects about whether or not you exist and, uh, and help us, Lord, to approach those kinds of those kinds of subjects with an open mind and open heart to follow where the evidence goes. Lord, if that points to you, then help us to serve you. Lord, we do know that the evidence points to you, and we're so thankful for that. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus on you despite the, the busyness and the trials of this life. Thank you, Lord, for all those who have put in the years and put in the, the work to help us in this, this area, to help us understand you and your creation a little bit better. We're so thankful, Lord, for all the things that you've done for us, most of all for the fact that you sent your son to die on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.